experienced it a thousand times. Maybe you're at a hotel or you're in a business building of some sort and you're in a hurry. And so you walk up to the elevator, you press the button, you check in your watch, and finally the doors open and the elevator's crowded. And you're kind of looking, is, is there room for me? Meanwhile, the people on the other side, they're in a hurry also. And the door opens and they go, this guy. <laughs> this guy wants to get on our elevator. And so you're looking and you're like, is there room? And, and of course, they, they kind of start to finally make room. And, and as you get on, something happens. There's a transformation. Because now as you turn, you get on, the door shut. Now it's, now it's our elevator. It's your, it's your elevator. So it goes down a floor. And of course, it gets stopped. The door's open. And now you go, this guy. <laughs> Doesn't he know that we're in a hurry? Doesn't he know that for these last 10 feet, this has been our elevator? What is he doing? You've experienced it a thousand times. I want to welcome you to Crosspoint again this morning. Uh, my name is Kale Courtright, one of the ministers here, and, and I'm so glad that you're here to worship with us, especially if you're new today, if you're one of our guests. We hope that you felt right at home with our church family. I want to stop for a minute. I want to say thank you to this church family. You know, over the last few weeks, we've asked for donations for our Blue Bucket Sunday. And that happened last week. And we asked for $8,000 so that we could do some good in this community. And church, you gave over $10,000 towards that. <clears throat> There's no way to know exactly how far that will go and the lives that it will touch. But I know this, that we're going to be able to give Thanksgiving meals to over 140 families this, this year. And if you just think about 140 families across our city will have a Thanksgiving because of your generosity. And so thank you for partnering with us in that. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn it over to the book of Jonah today. We're going to finish our series on Jonah this morning. And Jonah's a small book. It's less than 50 verses. It's, it's about one page in your Bible. It wouldn't take long to read start to finish, but there is a lot of wisdom packed in those pages. There's a lot that you can learn about God in the book of Jonah. And so before we jump into Jonah chapter four, just as a brief recap, Jonah one starts out and God calls Jonah to Nineveh. And he says, rise up and go to Nineveh and proclaim my message there. Jonah does get up, but he runs in the opposite direction. He boards a boat sailing for the other side of the world. And what we learn is that God, you cannot run from God. God raises up a storm that stops Jonah and the boat in its tracks. And they come to find out that Jonah is the cause of this storm. And so he says, you know, throw me overboard. Uh, I'd rather be dead anyways. And the sailors, they're good people. They don't want to do that. They don't want to shed innocent blood. And so they look for any other way. And they finally realize there is no other way. And it is in throwing Jonah overboard and the storm moving on, that the sailors come to faith, that they offer sacrifices to the Lord. Jonah, meanwhile, goes overboard and he gets swallowed by a fish. He's in the fish for three days. And on one hand, that looks like punishment, but on the other hand, it's salvation because he could have died, uh, but yet God is providing him a path back to life. Now, I know that three days in the belly of a fish smells like punishment, but... <laughs> It really was salvation. And it's in the belly of the fish in Jonah chapter 2 that we get Jonah's 
prayer of repentance. And he ends that prayer by saying, what I have vowed, I will do. Now, we've all said prayers like that. We've all wanted out of a situation. We've wanted something to happen. We want our team to win the game, whatever the case. We've said a lot of words, and sometimes it's different. there's a difference in saying them and living them out. And so God says, okay, we'll see if you will put your words into action. And in Jonah 3, he does just that. He goes to Nineveh finally. He proclaims God's message. And at that point, that's all he's been asked to do, to give the message out there. And there's a lesson even in that church is that we're called to proclaim the message and what what God does with it after that is not our responsibility. He does that. Nineveh hears the message and from the lowliest up to the highest, they turn in repentance. They fast. They don't know if it's going to work, but they hear God's message and they take it to heart. So they begin fasting. And what we get at the end of Jonah chapter 3 is this message from God that says, he says, I will relent from my anger and Nineveh will not be overthrown. And that leads us to Jonah chapter 4 where it starts in verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became very angry. By all measures, Jonah has been a success. Sure, he took the long way there. There were stumbles on the way, but he has been a success. God called him to Nineveh. He went there. And in that, in, in that Nineveh turned towards God. He's been a success. This is something to rejoice over. He proclaimed the message, and Nineveh turned their hearts back to God. There is transformation happening. There is repentance happening. And Jonah is furious. Jonah doesn't want any of this. Jonah would rather... Nineveh not repent than to have them turn back towards God. It's in this moment that you want to just say, you want to put your arm around Jonah and just say, man, just pretend. Just act like it's okay. You know, this is a different time in life. You don't live in Nineveh. What's it to you if they follow God? You don't, you're not going to be following them on Instagram. You're not going to be reading up about them in the newspaper. Who cares? Let's at least pretend But Jonah can't. He's angry and he's going to turn and give God his anger. Verse 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? See, Jonah knows God. And from the very beginning, Jonah has known God. And we didn't have that many details in Jonah chapter 1. But Jonah lays it out for us here at the end of the book. This is why I didn't want to go, God. Because I know who you are. And look at what he accuses God of. Being gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger, abounding in love. How dare you be like that? How dare you be compassionate and gracious to these people? See, he knew who God was, and he wanted none of it for Nineveh. He knew that God would not send calamity. He knew that God would be forgiving. And frankly, he doesn't want any forgiveness for Nineveh. He thinks that God is soft on sinners. See, Jonah follows in the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden, and he puts himself in the seat of judgment. He puts himself there to say, to determine who should be in and who should be out. Nineveh is wicked. They don't deserve any part of this. And he, and he even goes a step further and he turns the judgment on God. 
I knew this is what you were like. And he's calling on God to be different. He's turning on God to turn from his graciousness, from his compassion. See, Jonah is the insider, and he wants the outsiders to stay outside. But what he learns is that God's love extends not just for those that are inside, but also for the Ninevehs of this world. And Jonah says, if they're in, then I'm out. That's why he says, I would rather, it'd be better for me to die than live because I cannot live in a world that Nineveh gets to be part of this. And so if they're in, he's out. Verse five, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Jonah says, if this this is going to happen, then I'm out of here. He's not commanded to go out, but he does leave anyways. And it's in this moment that there is kind of an echo of Sodom and Gomorrah, that he's left this city that he thinks should be that he thinks should have judgment. And he turns back and he watches. He wants to know if God's forgiveness will stick. He wants to know if their repentance will stick. And it's not very vague to understand that Jonah doesn't want that. He wants them to fall away from the Lord and the Lord to give them just what he thinks they deserve. And so this is how it continues. This is how God treats Jonah, starting in verse 6. The Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Now, in my house, I play the role of cleanup often. Walk around the house, see things that need to be put away, and I clean it up, sometimes too early. I, I'm the person that cleans up. It is my worst trait. And so <laughs> I remember walking through sometime, and just the, what I saw to you and me could only be described as trash. A scrap piece of paper with some scribbles on it. It was trash. I balled it up, threw it in the trash can. Only later to find out that it was probably the most important piece of paper in the world to my children. And they said, I don't know what they called it, but I know that they said, where is my trash? And I said, it's where trash goes, in the trash can. And you know, you've had those moments with your kids that they just fall on the ground. And the worst thing has happened. I cannot believe you did that. Of course, I responded, just rip off any piece of paper, right? I mean, what's, what's the difference? Here, in this moment, God is dealing with one of his children in a very same situation is what it seems like to me. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? It is, and I wish I were dead. <laughs> he, comes, he comes across just like a child. See, what he had experienced is he had experienced God's grace. He wasn't asked to go outside the city, but Jonah does leave the city. And in God's grace, he provides a leafy plant. There's no thanksgiving recorded from Jonah in this. But then God removes his grace. And sometimes that's what it looks like to experience punishment or maybe discipline from God. It's to kind of get what you asked for. God didn't ask him to go outside the city. He went outside the city. And now he... He experiences exactly what he wanted. He wanted to be sitting out there, and this is what he experienced. 
God asks, is it right for you to be angry? He says, it, it is right for me to be angry because I'm hot and it's, I don't know whose fault it is, but it's not my fault. That's essentially what Jonah's saying. He doesn't even ex- understand the grace that God had given him. And it's as if God wants to say, don't you see? This is the same as me, as how I'm trying to treat Nineveh. I'm trying to extend them my grace and mercy and you would rather them endure punishment. This is what grace looks like. So is it right for you to be angry? What's it to you if I save Nineveh? Why should you be angry about this plant? God wants Jonah to link those two ideas. This is God's response in verse 10. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it and make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and so many animals? And if you have a Bible in front of you, you're looking for chapter 5, and it's not there. (laughs) You're looking for more text, and it just isn't there. That's where the story ends. And it feels abrupt to me. It feels like there should be more to the story. But I think God, and I think the writer of Jonah, wants you to see something in that question. They want you to see the question, should I not have concern for them? The word concern has this idea of of tears in the eyes. God's saying, should I not weep over Nineveh? Should I not have pity over Nineveh? These are people who don't know their right hand from their left. They're ignorant. They don't know the truth. Should I not have pity and shed tears over them? And when it leaves you with that, that question, it turns, and this question isn't for Jonah anymore. This question is for us. Should God not have concern for Nineveh? And the question is, is will we have concern for Nineveh? Will we turn and care about those that God cares for? Because that's the question in the book of Jonah, is who cares for Nineveh? Does Jonah care for Nineveh? Will Israel care for Nineveh? And God says that you should, because I do. You should care for those who I care for. And so what God teaches Jonah here, and what he likewise teaches you, all that hear these words, he teaches you three things. And the first is this. It isn't Jonah's place to say what happens to Nineveh. See, Jonah believed that as an insider, he should get a vote. Jonah believed that that out of fairness, he should get a say in this. See, you know, he was born to the right tribe. He's been there all along. He's been faithful. And when God called him, he went, yes, he took the long road there, but he did it. He eventually did what God asked. So if we're going to be fair, God, then I should get a vote in this. See, and Jonah really wants us to stay away from this idea of this comparison game. And it's what Jonah plays. He doesn't say it outright, but he says, well, you know, you've seen me, God. They're wicked. I'm not wicked. They don't deserve what you've given me. They deserve something different. And here's what I think God wants to say to Jonah, and he wants to say to us, is that he is God and you are not. It's not your right to choose who he wants to save, how he wants to deal with Nineveh. And God wants to save Nineveh. And so we follow God in that. Now, I don't know if we took a vote. I don't know what we would, what we would uh, choose, but I have my vote on what I would remove from the Bible if I could. Now, maybe some of you in here are David and Goliath. You would just rip that out or Moses in the bush. I don't know. But I would take out Matthew chapter 20. Now, again, before you think I'm a heretic, just stay with me for a second. (laughs) 
I, I wouldn't actually rip it out. Okay. <laughs> Matthew chapter 20 is a very, there's a very difficult lesson that Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 20. It's kind of like Jonah chapter 4 here. In, Jonah, in Matthew chapter 20, the apostles come to Jesus and they say, what will our reward be for following you? It's like they want to say, we've been here from the beginning. You called us, we left our jobs, we left our families, we left our homes, and we've been following you from the beginning. So what will our reward be? Because it's got to be better than everybody else's. Some of them followed you and they, they went away and they came back. And, and it's the idea of who is the greatest in the kingdom. And so in Matthew chapter 20, this question is posed to Jesus. And Jesus answers, as he always does, with a story. And it's this story that I would rip out of my Bible if I could. The story Jesus tells is this. There's a landowner, there's a vineyard owner, and he goes out early in the morning to hire some day laborers. Now, to work a day in Jewish culture is about 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And he goes out at 6 a.m. and he hires some workers. And he tells them, I will pay you one day's wage. I will pay you one silver coin, a denarius, to work. That's the going rate for a day's wage. Well, a couple hours pass, and the owner decides that he needs more workers. And so he goes out at 9 a.m., and he says, let me hire you for the day, and I will pay you what's fair. Not a day's wage. He says, I will pay you what's fair. At noon, he goes out, and he hires some more people. At 3, yet more. And even at 5 p.m., he goes out, and he hires some people, and he says, nobody's put you to work today? They, they said, no. He said, okay, come work for an hour, and I'll pay you what's fair. Now, at the end of the day, one hour later, he starts paying the workers. And he starts with those who have worked the least, and he works his way up. And the, the 5 p.m. workers come in, and he pays them one denarius, one day's wage. Now, imagine if you're these guys. You've got to be so excited. You worked one hour, and you're earning what typically takes a whole day's worth of work to earn. These were guys that... that after, even after lunch, they didn't know if they were going to get work that day. They didn't know if they were going to be able to feed their families, if they were going to be able to pay the bills, and now they had work and they got paid for the whole day. Imagine their excitement. Well, there's another group of people that are excited, and it's the workers that have been there since 6 a.m., and they're watching this exchange, and they go, well, if they're getting a day's wage, well, then imagine what we're going to get. They're doing the math. They worked 12 times as much as the other people. So they think they, they deserve 12 times as much. And they get up in front of the landowner and he pays them exactly what he said he would pay them. He pays them one day's wage. He pays them one denarius. They were excited and now they're furious. How could you treat us this way? This is injustice. And this is how the landowner responds. He says, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? If we're being honest, church, it is injustice. It isn't right. Go home today and try, try doing this experiment with your children and see what happens. <laughs> My kids would riot, and so would yours. Because we know what's fair. We have this baked into our bones from the beginning. We know when things are unfair, and this is unfair. And if we're not careful, church, we think that we're the 6 a.m. workers. We think we've been there all along. We think, you know, I go to church every single Sunday. 
I've been righteous. I haven't been wicked. I'm not like Nineveh. I'm not like those people. I'm here. We want to ask the same question. Shouldn't I get more? And this is the answer that Jesus gives. And what Jesus essentially wants to do is tell, show you that we're all on the level playing field. That when you've experienced the grace and mercy of God, you're all the same. That how he wants to dole it out is no concern of yours or mine. Again, he is God and we are not. There's only one reward, church, and that's being with him. And whether you showed up at the beginning or you showed up late, the reward is the same. And it's better than you could have ever hoped. And so it's not our place to answer, to say who God gets to save. And it leads us to the second lesson that God teaches Jonah. And that's Jonah has been ungrateful for the grace and mercy he has been shown. Now, church, again, we keep, I keep saying Jonah, but I, what I want you to understand is that the text wants that to be a placeholder for yourself. Jonah has been ungrateful, but so too have we sometimes. There's been, multiple, there's been many times that we've been shown grace and mercy, and we haven't responded with thanksgiving as we should. See, Jonah was given the fish at the beginning. He asked for death. He even deserved death, but God provided him salvation through the fish. God even provided him the leafy plant for shade. God keeps giving Jonah grace upon grace, but rather than thanksgiving, he gets complaints. And if I'm being honest, that's oftentimes how my life looks too. That God gives me grace upon grace, but rather than my thanksgiving, he gets my complaints. Because we fall into this comparison game. We say, well, look what you gave them. I didn't get that much. See, it reminds me of what Bob Goff says. Grace never seems fair until you need a little. And church, that is so true. Jonah says, how could God save them? How could he give out that much grace? Not understanding how much he needed himself. See, Jonah has been given all the grace and mercy that was needed. And the thing about grace and mercy is that you, you can't earn it. And you definitely didn't deserve it. See, we were separated from God, church. There was nothing we could do to get back with him. There was no way we could earn our salvation. There was no way we deserved our salvation. But God gave us the gift of his son, Jesus. And in that gift, he gave us his grace and mercy so that we are with him. And grace always seems unfair. And so you realize that you needed it as well. And so church... Let us be thankful. Let us not fall into this trap of complaints and comparisons like Jonah did, but let us be thankful for what God has given us. And the last lesson that God teaches Jonah and he teaches us is that God's love extends to the whole world. And we knew this, church. We have the luxury of the Gospel of John where we read that, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But see, it didn't start there. From the very beginning, God has loved the whole world. In fact, this is the narrative that spans Genesis to Revelation. That from the beginning of time, God has always loved the world. There was never a time that he didn't love the whole world. All of scripture points to this. His aim, God's direction from the beginning, has been to be with and to love the whole world. Even Isaiah 49 attests, I will also make you a light to, for the Gentiles. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. See, even in the Old Testament, God has always wanted to extend his love to the whole world. 
We read it earlier today, but that extends to our mission as well. We're called to join in God's mission to extend to the world his love. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And church, if we stopped right there, that would be challenge enough, wouldn't it? That we regard no one from a worldly point of view. There is no one that God sees as worldly. That everyone that you've ever encountered is created in the image of God. Everyone that you've ever encountered, God loved and wanted to be in relationship with. There is no difference between insider and outsider, us and them, this room or any other room. God has always loved the whole world. Paul continues, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. That sounds a lot like Jonah, doesn't it? God was reconciling the world back to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. See, church, this is a message of hope. This is a message of challenge. This is a message for us. That you can take hope in the fact that Jesus Christ has made you new. That through him, God has reconciled you back to himself. But with it, he also gives you this challenge. He also gives you this burden, church. That you won't see anyone with a worldly point of view any longer, but that now your ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. You are an ambassador of Christ. You see what Paul said there? As though God were making his appeal through you. See, the way that we live our life matters. What we do outside of this room matters because God is using you to reach the whole world. God has a church for this mission. I love how theologian Christopher Wright said it. It's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. See, church, mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. And from the beginning, God's mission has been to reconcile the whole world back to himself, was to extend his love to the whole world. He wants to be in relationship with the whole world, church, and we are called to join him in that mission. And so maybe you've stood there before as the elevator doors have opened and that as you become, you get a place in the elevator, you become, this is your elevator. This is who you are. And you've looked in judgment at another and said, how can we make room for you? Church, this can never be what the church looks like. There's always room for another. In fact, the call of the church is is to be for the sake of the world. This community exists not for this room, not for this sake, but for the sake of the world. See, if we, sometimes we get, mis, we get confused and we think that this is what it's all about, that this moment, that this is the show, that this is the game. But church, if anything, this is halftime. This is a timeout. We come in here to be encouraged, to be lifted back up, but to go back out into the world. So the, what the church looks like is constantly making space for another. It's constantly giving up our room for another. Our burden should be not for us in here, but for those out there. Because again, we don't view anyone with the, as the world does. 
These are people either that know Christ or don't know Christ. And if they don't know Christ, then our burden is to be their ambassador, is to extend the ministry of reconciliation to them. So church, what it looks like to be that community, what Jonah calls us to is to continue to make space for other people. It's to be about what God has always been about and is extending love to the nations. This is our call, church. It's, this is our challenge to see the message in Jonah, to see the message of Jesus Christ and to let it infect our lives. That we walk out of this room overflowing with gratitude because of what he has done in our life and it's the first thing on our lips. Jesus Christ has reconciled us back to God, that we have a relationship with him, and if you don't know him, then you need to. This is our message. This is who our God is. Our God is the God who loves the whole world, and he has called us to that same message. And so the challenge today, church, is will you take that message with you? When you meet someone this week, will you be their ambassador, their minister of reconciliation, so that if they don't know Jesus today, they will tomorrow? That's our call today, church. This community exists for the sake of the world, but we want to walk with you in that. We know that it can be tough, that we're all on our own journey. So whatever life has thrown at you, we want to pray with you. We want to be there with you in this moment. So our shepherds and their wives will be around the room. If you have any need for prayer today, won't you go to them so that we can pray with you? But church, if you also, if you haven't experienced the forgiveness, the grace, and the mercy that Jesus has to offer, Accept that free gift today. The baptistry is open and there is nothing standing between you and a place in his kingdom. God wants a relationship with you and he will stop at nothing. He will continue to chase you even if you are gone in Nineveh. He will chase you even there. So won't you accept that gift today? If we can help you in any way, won't you come while we stand and sing?